Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 78. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we went into the casino this week and played a little <laughs> bit of roulette. Yes, Monoreal Radio Roulette, the movie we landed on this month, 1994's Iron Will. Have you ever, up until this week, seen this movie? Nope. This was the first one. I, I'll do you one better. I had never even heard of it. I heard of it, but I didn't know anything about it. No, and just looking at it on Disney Plus as we were scrolling through... It looks like one of those, I mean, it screams 90s era. Like, it could have been anybody on there. Like, I just kind of assumed Jonathan Taylor Thomas was in it, and I was wrong. Yes. No, you could not have been more wrong, as Mackenzie Astin was the lead in this film. Um, A lot going on here. Um, Film is about dog sledding. Um, And I think the best way to go about this is to do a linear review. Because this was a first for both of us. I had heard of the movie, but had never seen it. I'm coming in completely green to this, so I'm, I'm fine with that. All right, so the film takes place in South Dakota in 1917. Will Stoneman and his team of race dogs are delivering the mail. I guess it's what he does for money. They never come out and say it, but I guess they didn't have to. Uh, the military is in town recruiting for the war, World War One. Uh, but he recently has been accepted to college. However, he is resisting the urge to attend due to his family's financial struggles. Um, so right out of the gate, I will say what I think this film does right here is this all of this gets sets up or, or this all gets set up very quickly. So they don't spend a lot of time on backstory. Right. And they do a really good job of establishing the setting and the era. I mean, obviously, okay. It's South Dakota. There's snow on the ground. We know it's cold, but just as far as him delivering the mail and having the dogs, it establishes the farm. It establishes the financial trouble. It happens very quickly and, but clearly. Right. And, uh, You start to meet some of the other people in town. You meet his father. You also meet Gus, his father's leading sled dog, who Will butts heads with throughout the course of this film. Because, really, Gus is used to his father being the lead, and he doesn't want to take orders from Will. Gus is so beautiful. Yes. I mean, all the dogs are in this film. Um but he's a white husky, I would assume. Yeah. With piercing blue eyes, just stunning. And I love that they used, I mean, granted it was the 90s, so we weren't really seeing things that were full-blown CGI. And, and right. when you did, it was things like Beverly Hills Chihuahua and 101 Dalmatians. So I'm really glad we didn't go this route here. Um, and they went; they were live action throughout. But yeah, it, gorgeous, gorgeous dogs. I love the animal actors. And... I think from the jump, and obviously you see a lot more of it as the film goes on, clearly, but I think the landscape lent itself well to the story, and I thought that it was beautifully shot. Absolutely. Um, 
while they are mushing home after chopping down a tree because his father owns and operates a uh, business that builds furniture. His father's sled flips into the river and his father basically sacrifices himself to save Will and the sled team as they are all getting pulled down into the river. I need to uh, talk about this scene. Yeah, we do. So here's here, I'm going to set this up for you. They're they're mushing by the that's the term mushing. They're mushing by the river. He gets overturned and he goes into the water and his sled kind of goes into the water, but safe to assume it's a fairly shallow river because he's just gone in off the edge and he just starts screaming, I'm caught, it's dragging me down. And then it continues to pull the dogs and Will as he tries to get them out. But, um, yeah, sloppy. Really sloppy. Most of the exposition comes from what the father is saying. And the editing is so quick that you don't really get the full scope of what's going on. I think they had to cheat it a little bit because they probably weren't, I mean... You couldn't endanger the animals, right. obviously. Right. I think this guy did his, the actor did his own stunt here. So I feel like they were very limited to what they were doing, but it comes off like a Monty Python sketch where it's just like, stand up. Yeah. Just get on your feet. Right. Now, this dog, Gus, tries to pull him out and save his life and be a hero. And ours is sitting here tearing up the carpet. Could you stop? Yeah. <laughs> This is what he does. It's fine. I don't like this carpet anyway. But he doesn't do this when we're not home. He's so good. Only when we record the show. Yeah. Hey. And yeah. Hey. Well, he has a future. He has a future in home design. Get Chip and Joanna on the phone. We have the third member of the team right here. Don't make me yell on the podcast. Nobody wants to hear that. Oh man, I'm leaving all of that in. Um but you know you're right though because as I said it was sloppy and it's just not very convincing because it's I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. You don't see him get stuck and you're right because they edit it quick and they sort of are trying to cheat it. And it happens in more than one instance in this film. Certain scenes the way that they're cut Kind of go from zero to 60 really fast. You mean those quote unquote high action scenes? Yeah, it's jarring. It almost, and I'd have to go back and watch it again, but the way that the sled falls, it also looks like there's a trajectory where he should be like catapulted out of it. Right. And then that's how he should end up in the river, but the sled initially is not in the river. It's resting on the riverbank. And that's what I'm saying. How are you caught? How is it on top of you where after you cut it loose and like, come on, Will, jump back in and grab him? Right. Because his father's in the water before the sled is in the water. So how did his father get caught on the sled if his father's already in the water? No, and granted that this was my first time watching it, I was almost ready to just write this movie off here as bad 90s. Yeah, and obviously we gave the movie a few viewings this week, so we will give it our 
full review at the very end here, but really not a very convincing death scene. But with all of that being said, yes, he cuts the rope and the dogs take off and it's almost comical. Yeah. Because the dogs take off because they're they're still trying to run and they're still trying to pull the sled out. But instead, they pull Will with it, who gets like the rope wrapped around his foot and he's getting dragged away. Similarly, like you'd see in a Monty Python skit. Yeah. It's funny. I really didn't think we were going to compare this to Monty Python. And here we are. Yeah. It's like when uh, it's like in Animal House when Niedermeyer gets dragged around by his horse. After it gets hit with the golf ball. Again, another movie I didn't think you could compare this to. Only the best on monorail radio. <laughs> well, the Stonemans are now faced with selling off the dogs to pay off their debts and keep their farm afloat. Will convinces his mother to let him run the J.W. Harper Carnival Derby to try and win $10,000 to pay their debts. And she reluctantly agrees and allows Ned to train him. Ned is, I guess he's a farmhand that helped his father with the uh, furniture building. We never really know what his role is, but we just know that he's close to the family and he obviously lives on the property. We also don't really know what the farm is either, because other than the dogs, there's not a lot of animals. And like you said, it's a furniture building business. It's a very abstract farm. I get the feeling that it's not really a functioning farm so much as it is that they just owned a lot of land and he had a barn that he ran his business out of. More of a um, self-sufficient yes, way of living. Exactly. And, yeah, and then he has the, the furniture business. Uh, Ned also played by August Schellenberg, whose most notable role was probably Randolph and Free Willy. Yeah. But same type of mentor here. And the other thing that that starts to happen here in particular, and it happens with his father, and I didn't mention this before, but it certainly does happen with Ned as well. It's kind of like one really gushy, inspirational quote after another, after another, after another, and follow your dreams and don't give up. The overall message is fine, but they sort of beat it to death. And it comes off as being very cheesy. The film that I figured we'd be comparing this one to the most is Mighty Ducks. I mean, similar era. I guess the association is so strong for me because this takes place on the frozen tundra. Mighty Ducks takes place on the ice. But... Mighty Ducks is chock full of inspirational quotes as well. It is. So is Angels in the Outfield, which was similar time period. But I don't believe they're quite as over the top as you see it here. I don't know. I feel like that was just kind of a 90s thing, though. Maybe. There's just a lot about this entire scene and setup that sort of don't make sense. I think the difference with this one, though, is because it's one person. It's not a team. And he also just lost a lot, too. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why it's probably being driven home so much. Right. But there are things here that sort of, like, either don't make sense or lead to dead ends. For example, there's a scene that you cut to Ned and he's singing over Will's father's grave. 
we don't see him do that before. We don't see him do it after. I mean, I understand he's, uh, yeah, th- this is still in America. He's Native American. So I understand spiritually he's trying to, I don't know, connect or or soothe his father's pain. I don't know, and I'm not going to be naive or ignorant enough to pretend that I know what's going on. However, you kind of don't ever see it again. And what I don't like about that is it's like, let's just call it what it is. It's like, I, I feel like they took the Native American and made him a mythical Native American because they all are, aren't they? I mean, I feel like that was definitely a 90s trope. And I think that's why I'm not even reading that much into it because he does the exact same thing in Free Willy. And I'm just like, oh, they typecast. So it really didn't even occur to me how out of the blue it is. Right. Um, or when he is eventually allowed to compete for this dog sled race, this, this carnival derby, Ned wakes him up in the middle of the night, drags him out of the house, throws him face first in the snow and says, your training starts now. And they shut the door and lock him out. Well, he's I understand that, to the cult. I understand that, but. This was a little too much. And even more is when Will is sitting there screaming, Mom, it's cold. Yes, it's South Dakota in the winter. And you expect to run a dog race that starts in Winnipeg, Manitoba. But that's exactly the point of why he did it, is he threw him out in the cold unexpectedly. If you fall off of your sled, and he throws him, that's the important part here, is that he throws him face down into the snow. Right. What do you think happens if you fall off your sled? I'm I'm aware of this, but... For a mother that was so afraid of even letting him do this and was so resistant to him entering this race, uh, race, I should say, that she just allows Ned to wake him up in the middle of the night, throw him face first in the snow, and lock him out of the house, it just seems to be a bit of a startling change of opinion. I can understand why she doesn't want him to go because it's dangerous. There is the line of, you know, I just lost my husband. So I think all of that is fairly obvious. But I guess what changes her mind is that she knows he's going to do it anyway. So why not let him train with seemingly the best trainer for him that's that's where I think they could have developed it a little bit more because it's like what makes Ned so qualified to do this I mean yes he worked with his father but it's like he is this mythical being and other than that we don't know what credentials he has to train him yeah why is he the dog oracle it that the question never really gets answered he never has any sort of backstory revealed where he ran this race, or he and his father were going to run this race. There's just nothing ever came of it. Right. All you get is that 90s Karate Kid-esque training montage. Yes. And they're playing more of a Native American soundtrack underneath it. And right. I think that that's supposed to connect the dots as to why, you know, he's the expert trainer. But it's never stated. Right. And they have him throwing, like the weighted medicine ball around so that he can practice his balance. And then for some reason, he is dragging Ned around in the sled. And he's uh, he's like giving him a piggyback and running with him while he is whispering these inspirational quotes. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, but wax on, wax off. This is not. No, it was. It reeked 90s without a doubt. This montage specifically it, it was a ripoff though it you were trying to capture something that had already been done a million times better yeah but so many of these movies even cool runnings that came out the year before this they had a training montage too but it wasn't like this yeah and d2 does it when they introduce the the new kids for the olympic team and they give you their background right or when they're skating around the quack quack attack is back jack yeah yeah yeah. but, but not they're they're not as bad as this montage is all of them respectively have their problems but it's not as bad as this so he goes through all of his training he boards a train for winnipeg to join the race at a gala the night before the race we find out that will fell eight dollars short of paying his late registration fee but Reporter Harry Kingsley puts up the $8 so that Will can enter the race. We meet some of the other racers, including the cold-hearted Borg Gullerson. We also meet sponsors uh, Angus McTeague and J.W. Harper. You may as well have called McTee Angus McIrish. (laughs) I have a lot of issues with this entire scene. First of all, it takes way too long. They go and introduce Will's competitors one by one, and it just takes forever. And it's not like any of them, other than the Scandinavian, play a really big role as antagonists, other than that they are the competitors. So I feel like that was kind of a big waste of time what I do like about this scene though is that Kingsley who's played by Kevin Spacey when he gives him the eight dollars it's purely for self-interest or so it seems right now but as far as a plot point goes it definitely ups the ante and it reinforces the financial troubles which was a really good subplot throughout the film between not being able to afford college which is what makes him enter the race because he might have, even if his dad hadn't passed away, he still would probably be in the same position trying to fund himself. Right. He sent away his $50 to enter the race, but apparently he sent it too late and he only had $2 on him. Um, yeah. Um, you later find out that, that it's in the self-interest of Kingsley. We'll get to that in a few minutes. You also see that the sponsors... Angus McIrish and and J.W. Harper and the rest of the lot, they're all placing side bets on how far these racers are going to make it, how long until they get knocked off, and Borg is trying to scare Will out of racing because he doesn't want them there. This reminded me of Rat Race. A hundred percent. And I was going to say, this is where the movie really started picking up for me. And I was like, I would watch an entire movie of these descendants of the Fidelity Fiduciary Bank placing bets on things. And I would just follow the train. And then I realized, yes, there are two movies like that. It's a mad, 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 mad world and rat race. Right. So 
Will races hard in the beginning because now the race starts the next day, taking the other racers and the sponsors by surprise. As the other racers fall out, Will continues to race aggressively and defy nature and his naysayers. It's at this point that we see that Kingsley is truly interested in only his own career and uses Will's story to help him gain notoriety. You know what, though? The way that they did it is interesting because he he's not completely a scumbag. Like, you can see that he's genuinely disappointed when his articles are buried on, like, page 14, and he wants to break that front page story. So he's motivated, but he's not completely ruthless. Yes and no. I think that he's a total snake. But it's perfect. The way that they eventually start to capitalize on, oh, he's a kid whose father died, and he's trying to save the family farm, and he wants to go to college, and that's why he entered the race. Because up to this point, they didn't know who he was or why he was doing this. The other racers are at least racers of notoriety. They know who all of these people are. And I think... Part of what makes this a success is that, listen, I'm not going to defend the poor decisions that he has made in his life. Let's not confuse what I'm about to say with defending him as a human being. However, when somebody does a good job, somebody does a good job. Kevin Spacey did a good job with this character. Regardless of what you think or how you feel about him, because I think that he's a dirtbag. Yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But with all that being said, I thought he did a good job with this character. Well, that's what I'm saying. He did do such a good job in this role because, yes, he's in it for personal gain. But there are moments where once he realizes Will's backstory, he does start to care and he does have a heart. And... You know, it takes a while to get there and come full circle, but he doesn't do anything underhanded to make the headline. Like, he doesn't hurt Will or the dogs in any way to get a scoop. Not like the way that the rest of these sponsors are hoping that something happens to him. Exactly. And what we eventually see will happen in just a few moments here. Right, and that's the thing. You're already getting it enough from the rest of the sponsors. You didn't need it from the journalist as well. Right. Now, while racing, Will slows his pace down in order to save another racer from freezing to death, which also helps in changing the sponsor's perception of him. During the rescue, he loses the whistle that his father used to mush his dogs. And the media eventually nicknames him Iron Will. So he has this whistle, and that's how he controls the dogs. He's got his father's tune that he would whistle, and he has it in the you know the little handmade wooden whistle. That's how he finally got Gus to come around to him. Right. And this is all being cut back and forth between, again, montage of him racing, montage of the other racers falling out, plus back and forth with the reporters, and you see the front the front page headlines and it's everything's just cut back and forth against each other in what is quite possibly one of my favorite sequences ever commit to film when they name him iron will yes because spacey's character 
says, oh, he's got his iron will, meaning, you know, he's a he's a strongly willed person and that's why he won't give up. And he goes, iron will. You're a genius talking to himself. And then he may as well have said 23 skadoosh. And then here comes the here comes the camera starts panning over all the reporters again, because now it's like a game of telephone and they all start calling him Iron Will. Oh, my God. My eyes roll into the back of my head every single time. But it's it's so laughably bad. I love it. As I mentioned before, the media does find his family and they find out everything that he is running for and they decide that they're going to play up the storyline and run with it to sell more newspapers. Angus approaches Borg and offers him $5,000 to eliminate Will from the race. And Borg attempts to do so the next day by unleashing his lead dog who attacks and nearly kills Gus. However... Will mixes a medication that ultimately saves Gus's life. A medication that was given to him by Ned. By Ned. So, Borg is worse than most over-the-top Bond villains with his ridiculous, maniacal laugh. Oh, he's so bad. It's it's awful. He is the most overacted, over-the-top, stereotypical villain that I think I've almost ever seen. There's a lot going on in this film as far as man versus nature. We see Will battling the elements. Man versus himself. He's got a prove that he can do this so he can get the money for college and fulfill his father's dream. So this man versus man is already kind of unnecessary, but when it's so over the top, I mean, even when we first meet Borg in the beginning, he tries to scare him out of the race with the frostbite and showing him how he's lost like two or three fingers. And he's like... If you need me to cut anything off, come find me. Yeah, I'll do it for free. But the delivery is just so over the top, it's comical. You're absolutely right. However, he could possibly be the worst Disney villain of all time because he kicks a dog. And I was like, as if we don't already have enough reasons to hate you. I mean, amongst other things, yes, he kicks Gus the first time that we see him when the dogs are being you know, stored in their little holding area. But... I mean, look, it all of his behavior, other than the horrible over-the-top acting, I'm just talking about trying to scare the kid out of the race, kicking the dog, sicking the dog on the on Gus. I believe he would do all of those things. They're they're not out of character traits for Borg. They make they they seem like the types of things that this guy would do. Oh, a hundred percent. But that's why you didn't need the crazy laugh or the over the top delivery. Like we we already see that you're a horrible person, right? You don't have to drive it home. It's it's already being exposed. The when when he sicks the dog on Gus, though, that's where this movie takes another interesting turning point because up until this point in the film 
it's been mostly Will battling the elements and everybody's just like, look at this kid. He's still in it. Yeah. We didn't think he was going to make it past a day. And we we haven't said this yet. This is based on a true story, loosely based. Right. So I'm sure that some of the things that happened to the other competitors are things that could happen on a race like this. Like one of them, one of them falls off of a cliff and one of them does get, I think they said influenza. Yeah. Um, obviously the frostbite. So they've jammed all of that into like the first two days or two legs of this race. And Will has managed to dodge everything that's thrown at him and he's helping people. Now he's completely won everybody over. You know, he's clearly the favored one at this point. So it's like what's standing in his way, and now you know you have another hurdle that he's got to get over. Right, because it's not just Borg now; it's Angus that is just throwing money at whoever he can throw money at, which it always ends up being Borg anyway. Um, and then eventually he tries to pay off Will. We'll get to that in a minute, but I mean he's just trying to throw money around so that. It's in his own self-interest because he wants to see his side bets pay off. Right. And that's, again, where the money is such an interesting subplot because Borg probably would have done all of this anyway and he would have done something ruthless to win. Now he's even more made, motivated to do it because he's going to make more money and he's being strong, strong-armed. strong Right. I think that the side bets and the paying people off, that's enough man versus man. I don't think you needed the additional conflict with Borg going back to when he enters the race the night before. Similarly, you see it in, uh, again, talking about other uh, Disney sports movies, D2, you see it with with the other team, let's go shake their hands. And then you see it in cool runnings with the Swiss. So this is not uncommon. It is at this point sort of become formulaic in these Disney sports films of the mid nineties. It really is an interesting commentary though, on America's feelings toward the rest of the world at the time. Yes. And especially because, and don't get me wrong. I love this country, but there's a lot of the, self-reflective love and admiration and the American dream and rah-rah. So that, in conjunction with how we perceive these other countries to be villains, yes, it is sort of one thing after another, and I'm not quite sure how this film fared overseas. I want to talk about the scene specifically where Gus is attacked, though. Yeah, because this is another instance of really frenetic editing, yes. but you don't really get to see a lot of the shots. Right. Which is fine, because I don't want to see a puppy attack. And I don't want to see blood. So you see the one dog charge at Gus. You hear the growling. You hear um, Gus start to whimper and squeal and cry. And you just see Will's face. You know, one of those, no! You know, and 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 so he gets involved and he breaks them up. And similarly to when his father goes into the river and he's in the river, but the sleds on the bank and then all of a sudden the sleds in the river dragging him down. When he breaks them up. Gus is standing and he's just fine post attack. 
And then cut to the dog basically on death's door. Right. Covered in blood. I mean, there's blood on him when he breaks them up, but I I used the term before, zero to 60 reactions, zero to 60 transitions. It happens here. You go from one extreme to the other. No, and I mean, what I really don't like about that is with typical dog behavior, one of them would cower. Like you would have think that Gus would have backed off. So the fact that he's still standing isn't really accurate. As far as the blood goes, I mean, he's a pure white dog. So the blood's going to look bad no matter what. But they just, again, over the time. The rest of the makeup in the movie is amazing. Like the the frostbite progression, we're going to talk more about that when when we get around to it. But um the blood is pretty bad cuz it's it it's almost pink. Well, I mean, it's it's on his white fur. They're rolling around in the snow. Of all of the issues I have with the scene, that's something I care about the least. My problem is he's standing there and then he's fighting for his life. How are you standing there and then you're fighting for your life in the next cut? Right, because it's not even like it's a couple of days later and he's like fighting off infection or something. Right. I mean, for that's the thing. For as much good as the film does, the extreme jumps, and it happens quite a few times. We've already mentioned two of them. It's really bad. Right, and it's, you know, it's his paw too. So that that serves to establish why he can't run, but... It's not like it was his neck or something where well, he'd he, be like really injured. Well, no, he is bleeding from his neck. I thought it was just the paw, like no, the it's, shoulder it's area. His, no, 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 it's his neck. But it, but it's everywhere. It's, that's the thing. It's everywhere. So I see where you have an issue with the fake blood because it is all over the place. Right. Like I don't just based on the way this was cut, I don't know where the wound is really supposed to be, especially because... You know, it's like we said in the death scene, you're not really seeing it. And all of this is coming from Will going, no, 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 and barking. And that's how you know something bad is happening is from the sound. Right. So moving on in the story here, Will eventually confronts Borg and punches him and accuses him of trying to kill Gus. When Borg pulls out a knife, Will pulls out a gun and tells Borg, that if he comes near him and the dogs again, he will kill him. And then he punches Kingsley for using him to sell papers. Before we move on anywhere else in this movie, before we move on to the conclusion, I want to say that I wasn't totally buying this movie for the first 10 or 15 minutes. When the dog sled racing began the movie got much better even though everything is kind of happening at once like somebody's sick and the sled falls off the cliff it was it was a lot of like you could tell this is where they drew from real life and they just kind of tried to increase the drama and the action as soon as will pulls that gun and puts it in borg's face this movie gets much, much better. 
I feel like this is another instance, though, of the film going from zero to 60 because he's been so even tempered and even keeled this entire time. And I get it. Everybody has that moment where they're pushed too far. But I I love it regardless that it escalates very quickly because, you know, I, I like seeing him become unhinged. I like seeing the fight in him other than I want this money to pay for college. It's now about I've been bullied this entire time and I want to stand up for myself. It's a great character arc moment. But it's not just himself that he's standing up for. It's the dogs. Yes. And when he turns around and he punches Kevin Spacey and says, that's for running photographs to scare my mother. You know what? This is what you needed to see because... Spoiler alert, and if you didn't figure it out at this point, if I told you Disney made a movie about a sl- uh, made a movie about a sled dog race that a kid enters to save his farm, you know the kid wins the race, right? <laughs> right? Like I'm not spoiling that. You know going into the movie that's what's going to happen. Yes, absolutely. So, up until this point, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out he's going to win the race because if he doesn't, why do we care? Why would we have made the movie? We don't really have a complete story or that feel-good rah-rah moment. So I needed something else. I needed something more than your father will always be with you and he'll always be by your side and don't give up on your quote. dreams. An inspirational quote and rah-rah and 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 good on you and you're a you're a selfless person and you help other racers and we've turned another cheek on you and now we all love you and we didn't want you here to start i needed something else to happen i needed to see will turn i needed to see him grow i needed to see him become an adult and it happens here and this is where from this point to the end of the movie, I punched my ticket. I'm in. I, I'm all about it. I am fully invested in everything that's going on here. Because, I, at least upon first viewing, I was a little ho-hum about a lot of this. I completely agree with you. And especially because up until this point, you know, he's done well in the race. He's shown that he can battle the elements. He's shown that he's kind because he's still helping his competitors throughout. So this proves why he deserves to win. It proves that he has that fight in him. Right. So after that happens, Angus approaches Will and offers him $3,000 to drop from the race, which Will rejects. Because Angus now, he knows he can't pay off Borg because Will's just going to put a bullet in his head. So now you got to try and and pay him off to drop out himself. And it's not the fir- it's not the last time. It is the first time, but it's not the last time Angus is going to try this. Will continues the race and he continues to do very very well. So Angus again offers him money and now he offers him 5,000 to quit. Except it's like Howie Mandel. Right. Except this time, Kingsley overhears the offer. And he threatens 
to run the story in the papers and expose Angus for what he really is. You know, like when the media used to do the right thing. Exactly. Now, in spite of the fact that Will is sick, and he is very sick, and frostbite is starting to set in, he is set on finishing this race. He's also overtired because we didn't mention this in the Gus attack scene. Also, part of the reason that they got attacked was because they had stopped. He's seeing things and he's hallucinating. Right. Because so they were just sitting ducks right there. Yeah, because I think they said the first day you're going to sleep five hours, the second day four the third day three, and then at the end, you're just not going to sleep at all. That was one of the words of wisdom from Ned was run more, sleep less. Yes, and run at night. Yes. Get comfortable with running at night because the other racers will not be comfortable with running at night. Because that's the other thing. There's really no rules here. The rules are there ain't no rules. You're kind of just like, you're starting in Winnipeg. You're finishing in... Where were they? I think St. Paul, Minnesota. Yes. Um, bye. <laughs> there's no like staging. No, there's no track that they have to follow. There's no checkpoints. There's really nothing. I mean, there are checkpoints, but it's it's mostly just to be like, oh, you're still alive. And, and a lot of them like use their checkpoints to set up camp and sleep for a few hours. But that's what I'm saying. They're, they're checkpoints, but not in the sense of like there's set room and board for them to stay at once they get there right so with all of that being said he does sleep for two hours and he sets off to keep racing however the others are tipped off that he has now set off at night and they all set off to try and catch him for now this is the final day of the race as they race on will's health continues to deteriorate Borg and Will take a dangerous route that considerably cuts the race course down, which no other racer is willing to try because, as we just said, it's not like there's a specific course. You can kind of take shortcuts if you want. Which actually almost got Will in a lot of trouble because in the leg before this, uh, he crosses the border into the into the states and turns out people are rooting for him, which he doesn't know because he has no access to the newspaper or anything. So there's a little parade in town and then he follows these two kids who think they're going to lead him down a shortcut and it was over a lake, which he didn't want to take. Well, he, he if he he would have been just fine if he would have run across the ice. He didn't want to do that because now he's afraid of the water because of what happened to his father. So instead, he goes up on like a train trestle and decides he's going to run on a train track because that is much more safe than running across ice again in Minnesota in the winter. Derivative 90s trope. How so? Have you not seen Stand By Me? That was the 80s. But I under but I'll give it to you. I'll give it's it's credible. Fine. Less than ten years. I think Stand By Me was eighty five. Was or, it? Yeah. Was it that really? Yes, it was. Yeah. Hard to believe, right? I didn't think Jerry O'Connell was that old. Yeah, and River Phoenix was in that movie. And well, Corey Feldman. He, that sh- of all of them, that, that should be the one. Yeah, okay. There's my benchmark. Yes, it is that old. Um but 
point is we've seen it before. Yes. And we see it again. So they take this dangerous side route and Will allows a fully healed Gus to lead the way. Borg's dogs eventually quit on the trail and they quit on him. And when he tries to get them to continue racing, they attack him, ending his pursuit of the $10,000 prize. Because you're supposed to trust the dogs. Again, Thank you, inspirational Ned. quote from Ned. Will emerges a half mile ahead of the other racers, but just before the finish line, his sled tips and he is unable at first to get up and finish the other racers because, you know, we need the drama. The other racers, they catch up. The entire crowd starts to do his father's whistle. This is the point of Angels in the Outfield where yes. they're all flapping their wings and Mighty Ducks where they're all doing the duck call. Yep, and you have the stereotypical flag scene with all of the American flags. We've seen it a thousand times. He gets up and he just barely finishes the race and he just barely wins. And I'm talking about a matter of inches. But he wins the race and they celebrate on the finish line and the movie ends. Literally just ends just right ends. there. Well, he's hugging his mother who it is worth noting that once Kingsley found out his backstory, he did pay to have his family and Ned and Ned. <laughs> uh I almost said flown out, but uh uh trained out. Yeah. Um this whistling scene is really over the top. It's nice, but it's really over the top. For as great as this movie becomes once we see Will unhinged and he's punching people, this just dragged it right back down. Yeah. Right back down to like, we're going to look the other way because it was a 90s movie. Yeah. You kind of have to. Um, let's talk about the score here for a minute. I think that the score is great. I think it's wonderful. Joel McNeely did the music for this film. But if I have a criticism of it, there are times where the movie is trying to be serious and the music is a bit too whimsical. And I feel that it disconnects certain scenes from really what they're trying to accomplish. If that makes any sense whatsoever. It does. But to me, it kind of feels like every other 90s sports movie. I mean, I know we keep saying the Mighty Ducks, but like I was actually it, it reminds me of Mighty Ducks so much. I was actually surprised to find out that he did not work on that film. So I'm thinking this guy is like the John Williams of 90s sports movies and turns out that's not the case yeah we kind of discussed the characters because we did do a linear review of this movie so i don't want to waste any more time really discussing them or trying to break them down but let's talk about this makeup okay yeah as this race wears on you start to see he goes from having dry skin to having dry skin and chap lips to having dried blood all over his face, running down his chin. And the same thing with the other racers. 
which is an accurate depiction of what these guys went through when they really did do these, you know, mushing derbies. The makeup is really impressive. Even just the dry skin when you start to notice, they did such an amazing job. And I mean, it might have been just exposure to the cold at that point. They might, I mean, maybe... they did shoot on location. They did shoot in Minnesota. Right. I have to imagine it was a challenge keeping their skin from looking dry throughout the rest of the film when they weren't on the race course. Like in the beginning, when they're in town, you know, you're not seeing it on anybody else. So I think it is a credit to them. You know, when you start to see his nose go, you see like it gets all red and really veiny and it it just looks so natural. That's right. what happens. And then later on, they do show his hands as they are starting to become frostbitten. Yeah, and they like swell up and, they're, and his foot too. You don't really see it because the scene is very dark and they're soaking his feet in water, but he does have it up on the edge of the tub at one point. And uh, it, it's just gross. It looks brutal. Yeah. Kudos to the makeup department here. We didn't talk about characters. And there's one character I do want to talk about. And that's Gus. Because I have to tell you, I love how they gave Gus a personality here. He doesn't speak. But the way that the animal actor interacts with Will and just the way that they trained him and as odd as it sounds because he, he, he really he can't emote but he still but he still does and I think that it was a really interesting take that they that they did here with personifying him and I really like what they did with him to the point where last year we did our talk, uh, our top five Disney dogs list with Detour to Neverland. And I may have to rethink my list to get Gus on it. Wow. Well, to be fair, we kept it to animated dogs. This is true. So he's only edged out on a technicality. True. Um, no, I agree with you. I think it was a smart choice, especially to only do it with one dog and not the entire pack, because I feel like then it would have become almost too much like a, like a Rudolph story. Yeah. Um, so I really like that he had to earn Gus's trust in light of losing his father. Cause he did. That's the thing. They had their own, they each had their own pack of dogs when they were deciding which dogs to run. Ned told him that he had to take Gus because Gus was born to do this and he's a natural he's a champion. And, and, yeah. Like Ned, we don't know why he's qualified, but he is. Yes. Th that's what he said. You're right. Champion was the word that he used, but it also does add another layer to the story of man versus animal because Anything could have gone wrong. You know, we we saw what happened in the beginning when he loses his father is that the dogs didn't stick around to put Will in danger and they just took off. So if they kind of wanted to do their thing, they might not have cooperated with him. Final synopsis. You want to go or you want me to go first? You can go first. Okay. I think that the film 
in totality is beautifully shot. I think that the sets and the costumes are really, really impressive. Um, I think the race scenes are as good as any that I've ever seen in any horse racing film or stock car racing film. I think once they start to race, I mentioned before, I think the movie gets a lot better. Um, I think that it does have its warts. I think that um, some of the dialogue is sort of sloppy, like when Will is sitting there whistling his father's tune and someone comes out and says, what are you whistling? He's like, I'm whistling nothing. No, they they literally just heard you. Um, I think that we went over a lot of the 90s tropes before. What we didn't mention was, as he's pulling out of the train station, that long stare as the train is pulling away because, of course, you had to have the long stare as the train is pulling away shot. Um, But with it being said, I think the movie is... Better on a second viewing. I I would suggest watching this movie more than once. If you watch it one time, you may miss out on certain things. And I think that because the first 15 or 20 minutes of the movie is so rough that you're going to be turned off of it, especially after you've seen how the movie amps up in the last 20 minutes, I think you'd be a lot more... Um, invested in the film, so it is better to watch it a second time. And with that said, I do think that it has rewatchability. Is it dated? Yes. And and I know it's a period piece, but it's a dated version of a dated period. And it is cheesy, but you know what? I, I still find enough here where I think the movie is inspiring, and I think that I do find myself engaged in the film when I watch it, albeit it's only been maybe three times in my life. But the fact that I can say that I can put that much into a film that I've only seen three times tells you what you need to know. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good movie. It's not great, but it's better than good. The first time we watched it, I honestly thought, that wasn't bad for the 90s. That was just out and out bad. Because for whatever reason, I was just really zeroing in to the cheese factor. Like we talked about the over-the-top villain or the inspirational quotes. And that's really what stuck with me on my first viewing. And then when we watched it again, I remember the next morning, it just stayed with me in a different way. And I kept thinking about it and I was like, wow, you know what? That was actually a really good movie. Um, I think it's a really strong story. I mean, granted, yes, it is loosely based on a, on a true story. What they did here with the adaptation was really smart by giving him so many other battles. Like we mentioned with the man versus man and the man versus nature and the man versus himself. I mean, the man versus nature is obvious, but the way that they layered the story with things like the financial problems and then Kingsley's own personal battle of trying to better his career and move himself forward, but also doing the right thing. There's just so many other elements that push Will's story forward. Um, So I really enjoyed it. I wish I had seen this one earlier on because I feel like I definitely would have enjoyed this much more as a kid because I wouldn't have been reading so much into these things. 
and I would have taken a lot less issue with most of them. Um, but I'd say this is a roulette win for us. I think so too. And I think that if we consistently land and, and listen, we don't know what these movies are going to be until we land on them playing the roulette. But if we can consistently land on things similar to this, I think that we're going to be in very good shape. Yeah, I mean, the first time we tried Disney Plus Roulette, we landed on Blank Check, which was a staple for both of us growing up. So I was excited to get something that neither of us were familiar with at all. But this makes me look forward to having the entire, you know, like this is what Disney Plus is all about. And this is why we're doing this is so that we have the entire catalog at our fingertips and we're going to stumble across these hidden gems. Yeah. So we're interested to know what you guys have to say. Have you seen Iron Will before? What is your review of the film? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. You can also email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. News of the Week is coming up in just a minute. But first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly checked for discounts to make sure we were guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was Perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So you can contact me on any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me at j.zalezi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. We're coming up on March here, and that means we're, we're going to be getting some new titles added to Disney+, Plus, and this is our news of the week because... There's been a lot that's been made about Disney Plus, especially in the month of March, because they're getting ready for their uh, European launch on March 24th. But for those of us here in the States, there are a couple of movies that are sort of highly anticipated. The first one being on March 4th, we get the release of Black Panther on Disney Plus. And I know for a lot of people, that's one they've been waiting for. Yeah, that was one of the things that I feel like people were disappointed about when they first signed up because not everybody realized we weren't getting every single movie. Um, And I feel like a lot of the Marvel stuff was one of the bigger disappointments. And I mean, granted, I think that still has a lot to do with them finishing out their contracts with Netflix and making sure that they're in the clear before they release them. But I just don't think people were aware of that. So I feel like this is one of those things where it's like, okay, you can calm down now. Right. And then you have The Finest Hours. That is returning to Disney+. Plus. That is going to be on March 6th. We actually gave a copy of that film away on the show. And we have another movie that we're giving away right now. We'll talk about that uh, before we wrap up here. And you've got 
Marvel's Hero Project, you have Disney Fairy Tale Weddings, you know, just One Day at Disney and uh, Diary of a Future President. Those Disney Plus original television shows are are getting their release uh, once a week as well. You're also seeing the second season of Big Hero 6, the series that's going to drop on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. And then, oh God, a wrinkle in time is going to drop on March 25th. I wish they just drop it in general. Um, and that's really, <laughs> I mean, those, those are sort of the more noteworthy titles that are coming to Disney+. And we're also interested in knowing about the Disney Plus European launch, because I know that they announced some very heavy discounts because they're trying to get people to sign up. I know that it did over 26 million subscribers in the U.S. within its first six weeks, and obviously they're looking to have similar success overseas. And I know that we have a lot of listeners overseas. So I'll ask you the question, have you signed up for Disney Plus yet? Are you counting down the days to March 24th? What are you looking forward to watching the most? Again, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. I mentioned before that The Finest Hours was a prize that we gave away on the show in the past. And we do have a contest currently running as well. And this is going to run for another week. We have the Blu-ray DVD digital copy of the original animated classic Cinderella, as well as the two sequels that Cinderella had, which, yes, Cinderella had two sequels, for those of you who didn't know. I didn't know until I got them in the mail with the first movie. <laughs> but we're giving them all away. Yes, in honor of the 70th anniversary of Cinderella. Correct. And we did a post on all of our social media um, promoting the contest, so it's very easy. All you have to do to enter to win the copy of the movie is to like the post on our social media and comment by tagging a friend. Yes, on Facebook and Twitter, they are pinned to the top, so they are very easy to find. On Instagram, the post is not buried. Again, easy to find. And you have until Sunday, March 1st at 11.59 p.m. to enter the contest. We will announce the winner of the contest on our episode that will drop that following Tuesday, March the 3rd. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. And don't forget to subscribe to Monoreal Radio on your podcast platform of choice. And if you could, please shoot us a rating on your podcast platform of choice and on Facebook as well, as we would love to connect with more of you and we'd love to hear from more of you. Thank you so much again for Jackie. I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.